welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. Welcome back, everybody. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, coming to you live from the Worldview Leadership Academy. We are delighted to have you here with us all this week. It's been a fantastic week so far. We're about midway. It's half over, if you can believe that. Aww. 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 Thank you, Michael. <laughs> 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 Alright. So, the way that this is going to work, I'm here uh, with Michael Thiessen, Joe Boot, and Nate Wright. Uh, these, uh, these gentlemen have been delivering lectures and teaching them so far this week, and you've been uh, listening very attentively, and I'm so proud of you, and you've been writing down some questions. I'm going to come around with the microphone, give you an opportunity to uh, ask those questions, and give an opportunity to uh, all of our panelists to, uh, to respond. Who would like to begin? Right here. So this is for everybody, but what would you say to someone who calls Christians closed-minded? <laughs> I, I get called closed-minded a lot, so my answer this question. Um, uh, first of all, I often say, if you open up your mind too much, your brain is going to fall right out of your head. Um, but uh, I like what G.K. Chesterton said about an open mind. He said that uh, an open mind is as good as an open mouth. It's meant to close on something. So just like uh, an open mouth is meant to close on food, an open mind is meant to close on truth. So um, I, I would just say that um, Christians ought to be open-minded in that we will listen and respond to what other people have to say, but our minds are closed on the truth that God offers. And so I often say to people, I can be convinced of anything if you can convince me using the word of God, because I'm already convinced that God's word is the foundation for understanding everything else. Uh, so I would just say that. I would say an open mind is as good as an open mouth. You've got to find something to close on. There was a popular movie a number of years ago that came out called The Life of Pi. Did anybody see that? So Life of Pi is a very romantic portrayal um, of the, the claims of Hinduism, and you've got an atheist represented there. One of the, one of the most impactful statements in that movie uh, is this statement, those who believe everything believe nothing. And that is the reality going to what they just said, the reality is is that when somebody walks around and just will accept any uh, statement, any proposition, uh, whether they're conf- and, and two of them are conflicting and they try to convince you that both are true, they, they actually don't any, have any convictions of the truth. And then um, my grandfather, I'll quote my grandfather, um, my grandfather, when he was in the hospital on his deathbed, where there was a man across the way, and my grandfather was evangelizing. He said, do you believe in God? 
And uh, the man says, no. And my grandfather said very tactfully, well, then you're a fool. <laughs> because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And he quoted the Psalms. And so I, I think that you also have to hear within this, you know, we live by faith. And we have to be honest about that. We, we live by faith. Uh, we, we, have, we have a lot of evidence that we can go to. But we have to admit when someone is saying you're narrow-minded, as Nate just said, uh, I am constrained to Christ. I, I am constrained to the thoughts of Christ. And I live there by faith. And, and it is okay for you. It's important for you to say that. Thirdly, if you hear it as a bully tactic, it is simply what is called an ad hominem argument. It's attacking you rather than attacking your argument. And you know full well that the person who's calling you narrow-minded is likely far more narrow-minded than you are. Yes, I would say...
Well, narcissist or somebody who fell in love with his own uh, reflection um, and lost sight of everything else. Um, God's the opposite of that. The, the, the praise of his glory, I think it's uh, it was actually John Piper may have expressed it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's uh, concern in our glorifying him, in our worshipping him, is that we will truly discover what it means to be human and flourish. It's the way of life, right? This is the way, walk in it, the way of life and blessing is to acknowledge, worship and serve God because he is the life, Christ is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. So if you move away from that, you move in the direction of death and darkness. So God's um, calling for us as, as creatures to worship and glorify him is for our good. It's not, God didn't, uh, I mean these of course are speculations, the world is here, God is the creator of all things. But, but when we talk about God as self-contained, God was in an eternal fellowship of love before he created the world as Trinity. Jesus says the Father loves the Son, and, uh, and, and the Son loves the Father, right? And actually, it's the, it's the Son who knows the Father who can then reveal the Father to us. So there is a love relationship, and that existed before the foundation of the world within the Godhead. So creation, in that sense, some theologians have spoken about it as the overflow of the love of God within the community of, of the Trinity. So there is a right self-love. Right? You don't, we are to love others as much as we love ourselves. So self-love is not wrong um, because we need to know how to rightly value ourselves. God knows how to rightly value himself and his, his glory. But his creation, his desire for worship from his creatures, is that we might know what it means to be truly his, his image bearers, and know what life really is, what it truly means to be human, and to discover life in all its fullness. Um, to do less than that is to degrade humanity. You know what I was lecturing today about uh, false worldviews, the, the, the a false anthropology, uh, when we worship an idol. We get, a, we get a lesser view, a reduced view of humanity. If we don't worship the true and living God, we reduce ourselves. So it's actually the overflow of God's love relationship within the Trinity that brings about the creation of all things. And it's only when we glorify God that we find true satisfaction. Love what Augustine says, he says, that you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So God doesn't fall in love with his own reflection and forget everything else. Uh, he actually loves us so much that he wants us to glorify him. So, so I ask that individual to consider two scriptures, um, Exodus chapter 3 verse 5, when, when Moses approaches the burning bush, he's told, do not come any closer, God said, take off your sandals for the place where you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is, that is two statements about God. First of all, that he is, is holy, he is pure, he is above humanity. And second of all, that is a historical prologue. It's, 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 a, 
It's a statement to Moses of God's faithfulness uh, to the patriarchs. God is a faithful God. And then secondly, I, I turn to the book of Revelation, which is talking about Christ. Uh, in Revelation 5, 12, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Someone who would say God is a narcissist, and this, this goes to um, sim similar to some of the points that Joe was making about God's value, is that God is, the difference between a human narcissist and God is that God is worthy of our praise. He is holy and he is worthy. Christ, this is being the son of Christ, he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of the power that we accumulate on earth and give back to him. He's worthy of the wealth that we accumulate on earth and give back to him. He's worthy of all human wisdom reflecting and being centered upon him. He's worthy of our strength and our muscles to serve him. And usually when people make that statement, they don't understand that, again, we believe in the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-sovereign uh, uh, God of the universe who is worthy of these things. And so I'm thinking of the, you know, Jonathan Edwards' uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it is, it, is this, it is this sermon drawing people back again to the holiness of God and the worthiness of God is why people who would then reject him deserve an eternal punishment. It is an actual, um, it is, it is an actual punishment that is equal to the offense against sinning against a worthy, eternal God. And so that's just a pretty big accusation that I would draw into the worthiness of God to be praised. Yeah, I don't think I need to add anything to that. Yesterday in my lecture, um, one of the things I, I uh, tried to convey was that God's law is valuable to us because God knows how life works best in his world which means also that he knows our highest pleasure. He knows what brings us purpose and meaning and, and joy. And, uh, and he knows that that's only found in him. So it's, it's out of love, as both of these guys just said, that he draws us to worship him. So he knows better than we do what will make us happy. Thanks a lot, guys. Who's up next? Okay, where are, who's closer? Uh, Josiah. Um, in Dr. Boot's lecture on cultural apologetics today, he talked a lot about various idols that are present in today's world. I was wondering, is it possible to idolize the Bible itself? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> how do I say this without sounding neo-Orthodox? Um, <laughs> it is possible, we, we don't worship a book so th this this is still a book with pages and leather binding and so on it's it's a it's a book um and an, a non-believer <clears throat> can be given this book 
read it, and get no insight whatsoever. Because there is an important sense in which this becomes, becomes the word of God to us only through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. So whilst you know, there's a place for being respectful of, of um, sacred places, places that have been set apart for a special purpose, when you are in cultures where you know, if you put the Bible on the ground, like in Pakistan, people are like, <gasps> the Bible's on the ground. Oh, what are you doing? Right, that that is somehow, you've somehow offended God, that's a mistake. So the Bible is the Word of God, or actually Christ is the Word of God, and the Bible is also the inscripturated Word, becomes a, uh, is effective when it is made a living Word to us. Um, but some scholars can study this book, study it linguistically, and so on and so forth, and never grasp the Word of God. I say that to, to, to emphasize the point that it is sometimes Christians can fall into a kind of bibliolatry as though um, we're book worshippers. We're not. We don't, this is not the Quran, right? The Quran in Islam is an eternal book next to God. That's why it can't be translated in terms of, <clears throat> you can, of course, translate the Arabic, but that's not considered the true Quran for the Muslim. You, the, the Quran is to be recited in Arabic because the idea is that it's somehow an, an eternal book that is next to God himself. In a certain sense, it is the deification of a book. But um, in an important sense, the, um, there's elements of... Uh, of Scripture, we're told that Jesus himself says that the law itself um, won't pass away until everything is accomplished, which suggests that there's going to be a point when everything's accomplished and we actually don't need the Decalogue and the case law and all those things anymore. So this, this is revealed, it's not eternal, it was revealed in history and it was revealed, as we heard today, in stages by 40 by the Holy Spirit through 40 different authors. Uh, and Jesus, when, when he was preaching and when the, many of the apostles were preaching, we didn't even have the New Testament, the Newer Testament. We had the Older Testament. So there is, a, there is a danger that we can lose sight of the one we worship and start to venerate uh, a, a book. And we need to take care with that Sometimes I think there's a kind of biblicism that creeps into some Christians' thinking uh, where they think that the, the only kind of knowledge that is acceptable is the stuff that you can give chapter and verse for. Um, but that's not what actually the Bible even teaches. So th this should be, the Word of God should be at the center of our lives the Word of God is first the spoken Word of God that called all things into existence. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's the one we worship. All things were made through Him. He spoke them by His Word into existence. So that's the first meaning of the Word. Then there is the incarnate Word. So there's the creation Word, there's the incarnate Word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the living Word. His word is the word of God. And then there's the inscripturated word, 
which is contained in here. But there's an important sense in which it becomes the true word of God for you, not because this page is somehow holy with the words that are written on it, but because it's been this inspired by the Holy Spirit and enlivened to my heart by the Spirit is living and active. It's alive. But this, these pages, this leather binding, you know what? At some point, I think this is James's Bible because I accidentally left mine back at the Rathon. Um, this, this will wear out. Wear out. The binding's going to fade and it'll be tossed in the, in the garbage. And you'll get a new one. One of 400 English translations we heard today. Yeah. So there is a danger, that's probably a long way of saying, yes, there is, a, there is always a danger that we can, we can begin to worship uh, a temporal creature, and the Bible is a, is a creature of God. It's not God himself. And the only thing I would add to that is that we always need to be mindful of the sins that we as individuals or our culture are more prone to. So I would say I agree with everything Joe said. Absolutely, there is a possibility of idolizing the word. I think that's not kind of where we are as a culture right now. Right now, we tend to be falling into the ditch on the other side of the road, and that is to be uh, denigrating and disrespecting and dishonoring the word of God and not taking it as literally and uh, as uh, full of gratitude as we ought to. So I agree with everything he said. But I do think it's important for us to, to recognize sort of where we are in the, in the throes of history and what sins we and our culture are most prone to. So first of all, the lecture on the task of apologetics where you point out it is tearing down idols is was a great lecture on approaching this subject matter where we get off track a lot. So Joe, great lecture. Can we all give Dr. Joe a big round of applause? Yeah. Um, so here is a way in some of the ways that Joe was getting at. So a family Bible is passed on from a grandparent to a parent, to a grandchild. And so now there is family sentimental value in the book, but nobody ever reads it or uses it. And then it almost gets a superstitious behavior around the book itself. Don't damage the book. Um, it sits on the shelf and you go, but have you read it? Do you know it? Um, that would be an example of some of the things that Joe was talking about, it actually becoming a physical idol. Um, in our churches today, we have this battle of translations. And so I regularly joke with the young men of our church about how much they like ogle over the ESV all of a sudden. And everybody gets upset about it because they love the ESV. So it's just an age-old thing that happens. And so somebody will become, make an idol of the, of the book because they like a certain editor or translation, and then they like the school of thought that promotes that editor, and they want to be a part of the in crowd. And so all of a sudden, there's an arguing about that. So those are two examples of how it can become an, an idol in itself. But my last comment also did go towards Nate's comment. This accusation tends to come from people who want to veer away from the Bible 
and replace the word of God which some type, with some type of spiritual insight that then they don't want you to test their spiritual insight or their lack of spiritual insight by the word. And so I, th I think it's a real, a real issue, and I think it is also potentially a straw man when you're talking to somebody. Great question right here. My question is specifically for Michael Thiessen. You said that if you aren't able to make decisions, then you aren't rooted in God's word. Did you mean decisions about your personal life or decisions about what you believe in? Who should answer that question? I'm just, I don't know how to make the decision on that. Do you, do you want to do it? I'll take this one. You, oh, Ryan's going to take it. Go on, Mike. Um, can you repeat just the last part of the sentence? Wait for the mic. Did you mean decisions about your personal life or decisions about what you believe in? Well, the decisions about what you believe in are the foundation for the decisions you would make for your personal life. So in the same way that we were talking about morals being a discussion about the principles of right and wrong, and then ethics being the application, the, 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 the case studies or the uh, on-the-ground, rubber-hits-the-road application of those principles, um, it is a both-and, not an either-or. So you have to be able to make decisions upon what you believe that are rooted in the Bible. And, and there are, you know, tier one, tier two, tier three levels of decisions or, or foundational teachings where, you know, there, there are things that Christians must believe to be faithful and to be wise. And then there are areas where we have, you know, very close affinity for each other, but there are some minor differences and then there are some areas of, of less clarity in Scripture where we, where we really go to the, to the conscience, where we, we study and we do our very best and, and we are then compelled to um, be regulated by our individual conscience. So in all of those areas, you have to first decide, you have to first be informed by Scripture in order to believe rightly, and that's why the Ezra Institute says, think Christianly. And then when you're able to think Christianly, that allows you to go out and make the, 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 the proper decisions for life application. So it's a both and. And so people who distance themselves from Scripture or fail to take in Scripture, they're, they're at a disadvantage for both. You don't all need to answer it. We'll get more done that way. Okay, so then let's hear a round of applause for that answer. Yeah. Come on. Let's go. Um, okay, so my question was, like, it came about after Ryan's lecture specifically about food and eating, but uh, anyone can take a crack at it. Um, so I understand that we aren't to be pharisaical in our approach to diet, but since our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit and we're made in God's image, uh, isn't, you know, poor eating an insult to God's image and his creation? So like, um, for a different example, most Christians would agree that smoking is a sin that's, you know, it's harmful to the body and it's addictive, so, you know, it's, it's sinful. 
Um, but, you know, foods that are similarly addictive and harmful are, you know, often sort of, you know, excused and sort of just saying that, like, you know, just eat whatever you want and kind of be happy, just do it in moderation. But, like, where do we draw the line with these certain things? Like, if something is directly harmful, even if it isn't as taboo as smoking, isn't it still a sin? Right. Great question. So where, where's the line? Uh, I'm going to move up here because this seems weird. Everyone's looking at me from turning around. All right. So where, where, where's the line? Um, the, the emphasis that I had, I wanted to, uh, to keep on uh, emphasizing was that of gratitude for uh, everything that God has given us. And the counterpoint is, if our body is a temple, uh, isn't it, to, isn't it incumbent on us to, to be responsible to, to uh, steward that, to take good care of it, to not put uh, excessive amounts of junk food in the body? And uh, yes, absolutely. Um, scripture is full of, uh, of passages in Proverbs like, too much honey will make you sick. Like, too much sweet food, or when you go to you know, the house of a rich man to eat, Put a knife to your throat. It says, like, don't don't overeat, don't indulge, overindulge your appetite. Um, so there, the the principle is, in t in terms of taking care of your body, we we don't live to eat like uh, the ancient Epicurean philosophers. That was a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Thunderclap. <laughs> <laughs> right, so yeah, we're, we don't, uh, Paul, Paul has harsh words for uh, people who's, who he says their God is their belly. So we, we show the proper honor to God and we show proper honor to food and to our bodies by using it appropriately, uh, by, by fueling it with, uh, with the best type of food that, uh, that we can. And there's, uh, the, there are conscience issues there. There are issues of, uh, of virtue, of self-control, and the fruit of the Spirit that, uh, that we all need to be uh, cultivating. But that's, uh, there, we, again, there's, Nate alluded to it already, there are, you know, there are two miles of ditch for every mile of road. And we want to make sure that we are, uh, we're staying on the road with that one. I would also just say that um, the, the verse that you quoted about your body being your t a temple is specifically about sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. And so while we can extract principles and we, we ought to take care of our bodies and, and all that kind of stuff, that verse in context is specifically about sexual immorality. And so we can't, even though we can extract principles, we can't make it a one-to-one. -one. Therefore, anything that's bad for you um, can't be done with the body. And, and life is full of paradoxes in terms of the sun can be both good for you and bad for you. It gives you vitamin D, but it can also burn your skin. And remember that God also gives us harmful or dangerous things and commands us to actually master them. We're to, we're to take wine with our communion, and wine is uh, a, a, an alcoholic uh, wine that... You, it, 
Bible then says, don't get drunk. Well, why would he tell us to use wine if drunkenness is actually a sin? And part of it is because God tells us to take dominion of the world around us and to master the things around us. God gives you a tongue, and James describes uh, your tongue as something that can set whole forests on fire. So the Christian life is about exploring God's world, taking dominion of God's world, being given dangerous things. The word of God is dangerous. It cuts both ways, the word says. So we are to take dangerous things and learn how to wield them. And I think that that includes food and drink and all those various things. Excellent. Yeah, all I would add to that is that we need to be careful not to add sins to the Bible um, based on our personal proclivities. So there, one of the things you find that Christians want to do is to develop sort of regional holiness. So, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Um, these kind of ideas that, you know, are a given generation or cultural context decide is sinful. Now, gluttony is a sin. But there are poorer people who can't afford the kind of select the free-range eggs and avocado toast and so on, um, that some of us might think, well, that's the way we ought to treat our bodies because there's people in the developing world and often in not that far away maybe some of our neighbors who can't actually afford high-end food. And they literally are tucking away bread and rice and, and just poor quality pork and so on. So we mustn't invent sins that the Bible doesn't say are sins. Um, I'm certainly not encouraging anybody to smoke, but Charles Spurgeon said, if Catholics can burn incense to the glory of God, I can burn tobacco. Um, and so, you know, there's <clears throat> that we need to be careful that we don't introduce a new sin there. It may not be healthy, it may not be a good idea, but we mustn't start inventing sins that the Bible, that God's law, sin is lawlessness, not stuff that I don't like. Or, or things that I personally would prefer others didn't do. Sin is a violation of God's law. So we just have to be a bit careful there. Let's honor, absolutely honor our bodies, do the best to, to remain healthy and fit and to, to eat as well as we're able. But as soon as that becomes too important in our minds, we start to dis in danger of despising others. As Ryan explained, despising the hospitality of the poor person who can't put the lavish, healthy spread out for us, but has only got a very simple meal to offer, and so on. So these things become a, a, an issue, a prudential issue, an issue of wisdom uh, as opposed to sin. Unless we're glutting ourselves, gluttony, which is an aspect of greed, is sinful. Got time for two, maybe three questions, and I'm going to give one of them to James. So this one's following up with the question that was just asked. We talked a lot about idols this week so far, but how do you tell when your body becomes too much of an idol? Because it is a temple of God, but a lot of people do treat their body as idols. So where's that line in like, with people who struggle with it, how do you like find help almost? Well, not find help, but like. Let me give that to a man who's got lots of experience with that. <laughs> <laughs> The thing that's frustrating is I only wanted the mic because I was going to reference all of the young men wearing black muscle shirts all week long, of which I think James was one of them. Uh, so I really didn't want the mic uh, other than that. 
Uh, no, um, Scripture is really clear that physical fitness is of some use and that uh, pursuit of righteousness is usefulness for everything. And so I think you can tell when your body is becoming an idol. Um, if you're obsessed about it, always thinking about it, if you're changing your behaviors um, where you're hiding from people because you are uh, thinking somehow that being seen by them is um, offensive or a problem. The flip side of that is when you want everybody to see you. I've actually got a really great story about this. So I've got a I've got a cousin who is now and is like I'm I'm it's peachy yeah it's it's a. <laughs> It's oh, not yeah. about me, so I, it's I, called I have a cousin. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, I have a cousin. Uh, I, won't, I won't name him, not that he would ever listen to this podcast, um, who, since we have been 16 years old, and now he is in his like early 40s, at every family gathering we have ever done with the extended family, when we all start playing sports, his shirt comes off. And he has a hairy back, and he gets sweaty, and then he proceeds to go after we've played sports and hug all of the women. And for, for 30 years, I've been saying, John, like, dude. <laughs> or whatever your name is. <laughs> Put on your shirt, it's gross. And he is just completely, he's a construction worker, he's fairly ripped, it's one of the few things that he can celebrate, and it comes <laughs> off no matter what. <laughs> he's a construction worker, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it, Those are, that's my answer. For the benefit of the audience, that wasn't spontaneous applause to those joining us on the podcast. That was Michael holding up the applause we got card. To, we, got, we got it on video. Yeah, we've we, got it. We've got we the videos on prompts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's good. Oh, I would just add very quickly to that before giving this to Nate for comment too, that um, there's two things here I think that are also quite significant. One is it was the Greek pagan mind that idealized the Adonis, right? The Charles Atlas figure, the, the, the great hero who's supporting the world. And there, there is a, there is, it's interesting actually even culturally, if you look in the movies back to say the 1960s or 70s and um, the ideal male frame was not one that was ripped and beefed up and, and you know, trying to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, you know, the, the, the hero was, you all know Arnold Schwarzenegger is presumably, right? Are we that, not that, I'm not that old, right? Um, so the, uh, if you look, for example, at the early James Bonds, like um, Roger Moore or George Lazenby or even Sean Connery, these weren't people who spent six days a week in the gym trying to curve every pectoral into the perfect shape and all that sort of show muscle. Actually, as we've become more and more pagan, that sort of Adonis return to the Greek ideal um, has become 
uh, more idealized in our culture so that now all of the sort of, especially in, in movies, have to be sort of ripped, as we say. That's an interesting uh, social cultural phenomena. So on the one hand, there's a, there's a kind of body idolatry. We, Paul says physical exercises of some value. Paul himself was almost certainly short, stooped, bad eye condition, and considered weak. His presence was considered physically a puny presence. He wasn't considered a powerful presence at all. Whereas even then, the great orator, the great rhetorician, was supposed to be a powerful presence and a significant presence. So that's interesting. The Bible talks about Christ as one who had no beauty that we should be drawn to him. He wasn't, people weren't drawn to Christ because they thought, wow, what a good looking guy. He's totally ripped after being a stonemason. Uh, that wasn't how they, uh, the, what drew people to the Lord. Um, it was the, the power of his, of, the, of his character, the holiness of his life. That doesn't mean you can't go to the gym, right? I doesn't look like it these days, but I, you know, I haven't been able to set my bench up lately, but I, I've, I've spent a, a fair bit of time in the gym. I don't mind staying fit. I run, I jog, I try and stay in shape. That's good. Be healthy, right? Nothing wrong with being strong, but that can become very easily in our culture an idol. People get absolutely addicted to the gym and it becomes idolatrous, but this goes the other way too, which is when we despise our bodies. That's idolatry as well. Yeah. When we say, oh, I'm too ugly. I'm too, I'm too fat, I'm too this, I'm too that, and actually become obsessed, and we start having all kinds of dietary issues and body, that kind of body consciousness thing. That is idolatry. It may be inversed, and it may be like a pity party, but that is actually idolatry. God created you, and he thinks that you're fantastic. Come on. Right? <laughs> And the reality is, the simple reality is we all come in a variety of shapes and sizes, right? It wasn't God's intention that everybody looked like, I can't even think now, Uma Thurman. You don't even know who that is, do you? Um, you okay, never mind. Um, whoever the, 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 the latest idealized um, actors and actresses are, right? It, it, we're all different. We're all different. So... And that's God's purpose. God, that's God's diversity. So we shouldn't despise our bodies and always be comparing ourselves. And I think, ladies, perhaps you have a greater challenge with this than us men, probably, um, of, oh, oh, I don't look like her. Therefore, I've got to change. The I've got to try and, oh, and, and I'm not presentable. And I've got, I, we've got these idealized images in our mind. And that's destructive. And that actually, be careful, because that's a form of idolatry. Mm -hmm. I, and we mustn't despise the life and the physicality that God has given us as his gift. We all look different. That's life, okay? That's the beauty of the unity and diversity of the human family. And so we must, must be careful that there's both the, the, we've got to look a certain way, a certain, you know, that fitness kind of idolatry, but also the idolatry of despising ourselves. Great. Thanks. All right. We've got time for two more. Alyssa. If God has given a nation over to its depravity in order to judge it for its wickedness, is it possible to recover from that without being utterly destroyed first? Or is that kind of just the way it goes? It's a great question. Um, 
It's interesting. First of all, I, I, uh, one thing that I always keep in mind, especially every election, is John Calvin once said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So uh, oftentimes, how God judges a nation is giving them wicked rulers, and they weaken themselves through wicked laws first. Um, certainly, there are times you can look back throughout history, um, and uh, you can see that nations have been utterly destroyed by God. That's his prerogative. Um, I think that whenever you see a nation that's in decline, right, that's under the judgment of God, and I'll just talk about Canada uh, right now because that's where we are, it's obviously a nation in decline. It's a nation that's abandoned its heritage. It's a, it's a nation with wicked rulers. It's a, it's a nation that's despised the Christian heritage that um, it has been handed to it, and it is under the judgment of God. I think then within within Christendom, you'll have people, and there's even people up here on this panel who have um, uh, been, uh, have been uh, differently called by God to engage in the restitution and the reformation of Canada in different ways. Uh, and so I think uh, it's, I don't think it's ever too late for a nation until it's, <laughs> till it's utterly destroyed. And, and the reason I would say that is because um, throughout scripture, we see testimonies of both individuals and of nations that are restored by God, right? Israel was um, destroyed. The northern tribe was completely destroyed by the Assyrians. Southern tribe destroyed by the Babylonians, brought off into exile, and yet under the um, uh, under Zerubbabel and then Ezra, which is where the Ezra Institute gets its name, um, the, re the work of reformation and restitution begins. And then, of course, Nehemiah comes back around, rebuilds the walls, and there's wonderful rejoicing in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah about the rebuilding project that God did. And that was a nation that had utterly rejected God's covenant. And you read the book of Hosea, and it, it promises this time when God would, would win back this nation. So, um, so that obviously that's Israel, and Israel holds a, pl a special place in redemptive history, but I think that that's also there, right? Paul comes along uh, and says that the things that happened to Israel were written down for our instruction, and so that's written for our instruction. And so I think that we should always hold out hope. We should always um, be uh, that voice of the prophet who is calling the nation back to God, so no, it's never too late until, uh, until we're all not here anymore. But uh, I think that until that time, we have scriptural hope. And, uh, and I think that there's, what, what, what always uh, fascinates me is that when you look through not only the biblical history, but also in the history of, uh, you think of Wilbur, William Wilberforce, right, abolishing slavery. You look at um, uh, the work of John Knox in Scotland. We heard a wonderful testimony about William Tyndale today uh, during the Bible lecture. But uh, if you want to read some of these heroes, if you enjoyed that history, go and, and read the, the history of John Knox and Samuel Rutherford and some of the Scottish Covenanters. Um, and, and you can see how with a few men and women who take the word of God seriously, God can completely transform a nation. Mm -hmm. um, even, uh, you know, every year um, people celebrate St. Patrick's Day in a way that doesn't honor St. Patrick at all. But St. Patrick is an amazing story, uh, an amazing story of a guy who was called by God to go and convert uh, a, a very uh, uh, pagan nation full of idolatry. And they did. There's a great story, uh, St. Boniface, who comes in, and, and he's, uh, he's going to convert the barbarians there, and, uh, and he comes to uh, the, the, the tree of Thor, the uh, Donner's Oak, right? And, uh, and he cuts down, so he comes into this, this pagan nation where they worship this god, and this big giant oak tree is the symbol of their god, and to show them that their god is nothing 
to the living God, he cuts down, he gets an axe and he cuts down this giant oak tree that was supposed to be Thor's oak. And of course, he wasn't smitten by Thor. And so then he takes that wood and he builds a church and he converts the nation. And so you get these amazing stories of history where God uses bold individuals to, to turn the tide on a very dark nation. One of the uh, useful images in scripture is exile rather than utter decimation. Um, Israel being the, uh, an excellent example with, um, and the Ezra-Nehemiah uh, restoration. And I think in some respects we could look at uh, Western nations today. You know, Scripture says righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And sometimes we have to recognize that we should welcome God's judgment on, an, on a nation when it's in rebellion and apostasy, because when he's judging it, he's usually setting it aside to do something different, to work with a remnant, to do a work of restoration. So um, we do seem to be, as Christians, in a bit of a period of exile right now. And um, when we look at the history of, of God's work, we see that God uh, often does remarkable things immediately after an exile. And on that instruction for living in exile, Jeremiah 29 is a great passage, a great chapter for you to look at God's instructions for a people in exile. It could be summarized with um, a vision of localism in the sense of uh, things get tighter and closer, um, but it talks about planting gardens making sure your sons and daughters get married. You know, as we have sons and daughters who are of that age, how important it is that they find a godly spouse and, and, and raise godly children. Um, talking about praying for the peace and prosperity of the city to which you are carried into exile. Um, so I, I think Joe is very accurate with the fact that I, I, when we're so very concerned for Canada or the United Kingdom or the United States. It, it is not an expectation of total decimation. It is an, ex, an expectation of a time of judgment, a time of exile. And we really do as a church, you know, very practically, we need to stop living and being consumed with being online. And uh, th that that is a certain battleground, but very much Jeremiah 20. That's that famous passage where you read in verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. That is that is literally while he while the Lord is declaring that the people are about to go into exile. And so um, it's a uh, Jeremiah 29 is a great blueprint for how you thrive as a local church family, how you thrive as a, as a family, how you create local institutions, uh, how you affect your local city. Um, and it, you, you receive this warning, do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. And I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And, and that's just in that context when someone is rushing to you saying, it's, it's going to be fine. It's not going to get worse. It, 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 it's it's going to be over. Peace, peace. Like, this is no problem. Don't think about it. Don't be concerned about it. Don't believe your very eyes. 
the Lord's saying, whoa, whoa, like, if you're in a time of exile, don't let them just blanket over what I'm doing. See it for all that is happening, but here is a really good plan uh, in, the, in the way to do it. So, yeah. It's, uh, it's also worth remembering, you both uh, mentioned uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who, you know, a righteous man, a young man, calling out against the apostasy of Israel, warning of this exile, who himself gets swept up in this exile. So just your, your personal righteousness uh, does not, uh, will not act as some sort of magic physical barrier against judgment if and when that uh, judgment falls on a nation or on a community. Uh, but again, Joe, Joe made the point that uh, exile is a better word than destruction, as you originally put it. And that's partly because God already ran the destruction play at, uh, at the Great Flood, and he promised never to do that again. So. All right, Isaac, you get the last one. So in our um, small groups yesterday, we were reading verses on the lips and um, the things we say, and we came onto the topic of the righteous lie, um, and when it's when it's okay to lie, or if it's uh, ever okay to lie. For example, saving a life, um, Nazi Germany with the Jews hiding people. Um, so the question is, if um, well, since God is sovereign. Uh, why should we have to break His law in order to save people? Well, it's a good question. I'll kick it off and then uh, pass this on. A um, couple of things. First of all, the God's law is given into a fallen and a sinful world, a broken world. And we have to distinguish between living uprightly uh, and godly before the Lord, and the notion of a perfectionism uh, that thinks that that uh, in a in a sinful and fallen world we don't have to grapple with evil. Now, the context of of truth telling in Scripture, in the <clears throat> in the uh, commandments in the Decalogue, is actually a context of legal testimony. Um, you should not bear false witness against your neighbour. Now, we shouldn't gossip either. But the, the context there is not bearing false witness. Now, you do have some people who, with a perfectionist tendency who would say, well, if, you know, if somebody's broken into my house and they want to rape my wife and kill my kids, I'm, and they say, where is she? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. Well, that's evil. Right? You don't owe the truth to somebody who wants to use it to do evil. So there's a question is, when do we owe somebody the truth? And we don't always owe somebody the truth. This is clear from the Egyptian midwives in, uh, when, when Pharaoh said that the, the, uh, the males, the male babies, were to be basically tossed into the Nile, that they were to commit infanticide. And some of the Hebrew midwives didn't cooperate. And not only did they not do it, the Bible says that God blessed them for not doing it. So there are uh, contexts in which, and I think that's a, a pretty good one, pretty good example, where the, for the preservation of life, they didn't tell the truth in that circumstance. They misdirected. 
David pretended, King David pretended to be mad in, in one cot, acted like a madman to misdirect and deceive uh, the Philistines, his, his enemies, when he was actually living amongst them. Uh, so if we weren't in any context allowed to misdirect, either verbally or because, of course, you can misdirect people without using your words, then there would be no such thing as espionage or, or deception in war or even feigning a pass in, in soccer or rugby, right? You just lied. Yeah, well, that's the game, isn't it? Right, so there is a, there is a time and a place when God requires that Jesus made clear that, that there, are, there are the weighty matters of the law, righteousness and justice. Those are the weighty matters of the law. Now, he says, sure, bring your tithe, bring your cumin, bring, your, bring the tithes that you owe. But that's not the priority. The priority is God's righteousness and justice. So there is such a thing as the, you know, how many of you have seen the film Schindler's List, for example? I cannot believe it. Okay, so that's, you need to get that onto your watch list. That's a true story about Oskar Schindler, a German Jew, who basically lied and misdirected all the way through the war. His factories didn't even make one fireable shell for the Germans. He misdirected all the way in order to save Jewish people. There's a whole now, whole families of, a whole generations of what they call the Schindler Jews. Well, that is blessed by God. So, we, we, in a fallen and a sinful world, there will be people who will want to demand truth from us to, to use it to do evil. And those are the moments where it seems clear that we are allowed to misdirect. Um, but when it comes to testimony and what God requires of us in terms of justice, uh, we are obligated to um, telling the truth. And on that, on that note, right, there are, there are varying degrees and different severity of laws. Not, not, all, not every lie is equal. So um, <laughs> I'm not going to use that example that you just whispered to me. But um, we all have, uh, um, if someone defrauds, a couple of millions of dollars that requires different fines and different repayments than if a bunch of us buddies are out and uh, someone wasn't, doesn't want to share their pop and I go grab a Coke and they get ticked off. It, it, it's completely different degrees. And so then when you have this judicial context a witness is being called in a cross-examination to verify the facts of a situation. And the judge does deserve, and the, everyone involved in the situation does deserve to do it. So then, as we're looking at these scriptural examples, there seems to be another example where even a lower degree of misdirection is a moment of wisdom and obedience to save individuals from a greater crime. Now, this is the type of stuff that Christians have dialogued and tried to understand for centuries, 
I feel like it comes quite naturally in the real world. So Joe's example, um, someone comes in your house and they want to harm your family. Where are they? Well, that comes second after whether I've put them to ground with my gun. Like, they only get to ask me that if I haven't already shot them. <laughs> like, nobody's coming into my household without going to ground if they're hurting my... I, and so this is where we kind of get into this. Like, would any man in the room think twice about that for one second? And would you ever think you were doing wrong? Well, the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. And so there, the, exactly, thou shalt not murder. So there's a context for these things, and there is a context by which misdirection is actually th the right thing to do. Rahab was blessed for doing that. They sent spies into the land. So, yeah, it, it, part of the, the nature of your question, Isaac, I think comes from the Christian assumption that all sins are equal, and therefore, you know, telling somebody that um, we're not sure where the church is meeting right now is different than me going out and in court saying, uh, yes, I, I did see Ryan pull the trigger. But, but, I love how you've been in, living in the States for like eight months yeah, and you can't it. have a single conversation Dude. about without guns. <laughs> it's just... We would also have to say, though, it's not just, it's, we're not saying, I don't think Michael is trying to say there that it's just a lesser sin no. not to tell somebody where your family, it's not a sin at all, it's an act of righteousness mm -hmm. and justice to misdirect at that point. Yeah. This, Jesus talks about this as well. Jesus tells uh, people in the Sermon on the Mount, don't throw your pearls before swine, otherwise they'll you know, trample them underfoot and then turn and tear you in pieces as well. Like the, the pearl that is, is the truth. There are certain people, you know, Nazis hiding Jews is a, a dramatic but a very relevant example. Uh, the deception of the Hebrew midwives or, or Rahab, there was a lot on the line. And they're all commended uh, for their deception. Because the, you know, the pearl of truth, the people asking don't deserve the truth. In that, uh, in that case, it is, uh, as you say, it's an act of, of righteousness. It's an act of obedience to withhold it from them. And you even have the other, the, the opposite example in Scripture where Samson is actually, uh, it, it's obvious in the narrative that he did the wrong thing by telling right. Delilah the truth. So he ought to have kept that to himself. So you have the, the negative in Scripture as well. And on that point, just very practically, you can go a very long way to not tell the truth with actually not telling a lie. And so if your conscience is, I want to I do the very best I can to tell the truth, you know, you can deflect an awful lot of ways and not give away, you just bite your tongue half the time and, and you can get away with a lot of this stuff, which is very difficult for me to do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> all right, we're going to let Michael have the last word on that, it appears, but uh, all right, you, you can have this one, brother. <laughs> thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for being here. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation coming to you live from the Worldview Leadership Academy in Port Colborne. It has been such a blast to be here with all of you. Thank you for your 
thoughtful questions. I hope we've gone some way towards uh, answering them. You can approach any of us throughout the week if, uh, if you've got follow-up or we didn't get to something. From all of us here at the Ezra Institute, I remind you as ever that from him and through him and to him are all things. God bless you. May he alone be glorified. <laughs>